Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by BetterHelp. Here at the Underdog, we know life can be difficult, and sometimes you need to talk to someone. That's why we have partnered with BetterHelp, the leader in online therapy. Underdog listeners can save 10% on their first month. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash underdog. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash underdog to get your discount today. Today we want to welcome a plane crash survivor, author, broadcaster, and cycling extraordinaire, Jerry Schemmel. Jerry is a survivor of the tragic plane crash of United Flight 232 in Sioux City, Iowa on July 19, 1989, which killed 112 of the 296 on board. Schemmel has been a guest on national television programs, including Regis and Kathy Lee, 48 Hours, CBS This Morning, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and The Oprah Winfrey Show. His story has also been aired as an extended feature on ESPN and ESPN Sports Center. Jerry is the author of two books, Chosen to Live, which chronicles the crash of Flight 232 and its subsequent effects on his life. And in 2009, he published his second book, The Extravagant Gift. His sports casting career spans nearly 30 years and includes radio and television play-by-play of several professional and major college sports, including two seasons with the Minnesota Timberwolves, 10 seasons with the Colorado Rockies and 18 seasons as a voice of the Denver Nuggets and currently hosts a program called Amazing Americans, which will feature sports interviews focusing on authentic stories of inspiration. If all this isn't enough, Calvin, he is an elite cyclist who has biked across the country in seven and a half days. Welcome to the UDP, Jerry. That's a good reminder. I need to shorten my bio. That was way <laughs> and I was going to say, we don't even need to do the interview anymore. We just covered everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, good to talk with you guys. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you on this morning, that's for sure. We wanted to, to start off, obviously, um, with the tragic plane crash, um, something that pretty much almost everyone, only a limited few have been through. And I know you were the commissioner of the Continental Basketball Association at the time when you were on that flight 232 that was headed from Denver to Chicago uh, and unfortunately crashed on that July 19th, 1989 day, killing over 112 people. Please walk us through uh, those that aren't familiar with that day and, and what happened. Yeah, pretty pretty crazy day. I wasn't even supposed to be on that flight. I was supposed to take off at seven o'clock in the morning to a flight to Chicago on a flight from Denver here, and got uh, that flight canceled. Just get putting get putting on standby. And finally, at I think three o'clock in the afternoon, I got on the DC-10 headed for Chicago. We were completely full, 296 people aboard. We got about halfway there, Kyle, about about an hour of the flight, and the number two engine, the DC-10, exploded literally. And crippled the plane, and and the the crew tried an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. They just had so little control of the plane. Uh, the biggest thing was the airspeed. They tried to slow the plane down to have a safe landing. Couldn't do that. Uh, normal DC-10 landings about 125 miles an hour. We hit at 255, and that's just spelled disaster by itself. And we're just coming in too fast, too hard. Hit the ground. Uh, bounced a couple of times. Flipped over. Uh, smoke and fire inside the the cabin immediately and 
finally came to a halt and got out the plane. And the result, as you said, were 112 of the 296 aboard perished in that crash. Wow. And I think you were quoted as I saw when you put the DC 10 in distress, like our plane was, you should never have been able to fly that thing. It should have nosedived. The only way I can look at it and rack it up. It was a complete miracle. Was the crew crew courageous question mark? Absolutely. They did that. But I think God had his hand on that plane at some point too. Can you kind of touch upon, you know, captain Al and his Haynes and his uh, heroic team and, how they helped save some of those lives that might have not have made it through that event? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, first of all, it, it really is that. It's a miracle that I'm, I'm standing here talking to you guys today because I was told that there's a simulator here in Denver that uh, uh, United owns and they rent it out to their airlines. And they, in that simulator, have tried to, I've told now over 500 times, it's probably way more than that now. They put a crew in a DC 10 took out hydraulics like in our crash and not one guys, zero out of 500 was able to land that plane safely. The computer says the plane crashes and everybody's dead. So we overcame odds and, and, and became a bunch of miracles that day, 112 of us. But to get to your, your, your question about Captain Haynes, I don't know if we could have had anybody better in the cockpit, not just running controls, but leading the rest of the crew and the flight attendants and you know, he's, he's been labeled a hero. He's passed away now, but he never liked that tag. But I always thought he was that. Uh, and I, I was grateful that we had Captain Al Haynes, anybody in that cockpit. That's who I'd want to have. And that's who we had. And I think he saved lives. I really do. And, and speaking of hero, uh, you were also known as a hero. Sorry to steal your point here, <laughs> Mr. Black. But um, going back in, so I don't know if you can take the listeners through, you know, you were, I guess, upside down. You got out. You're in a cornfield, but then you hear a, a baby crying. I think it was Sabrina was her name. And then you go back in and, and get the baby. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I finally, finally found my way back out of the plane. I uh, find my way back uh, into the plane after I got in the cornfield. Like you said, I just heard a baby crying. And I, I honestly, guys, I didn't think it through. I didn't weigh any of the risks. I really didn't even think about it. It just sort of happened. I heard the crying and I went back in the plane and Grabbed this little baby. Uh, she was, this is crazy too, but sitting in row 11 originally. And we hit the ground. She's throwing the back of the plane into an overhead compartment in row 20, 28, 29, somewhere in there. And she's alive, let alone without any serious injuries. So I just grabbed her and got the plane the second time and started running away from the aircraft. But I got labeled a hero and I didn't think it ever fit because I didn't weigh any of those risks. I, I just sort of had it happen. I'm glad it happened, but I don't think it was heroic at all. Now, what's going through your mind? You, you know, you said you didn't weigh any of the risks, but can you kind of just, for those of us who, you know, have not been in that situation, what's going through your mind as you're, it's just so much chaos going on. How are you able to, you know, are you able to keep your composure? Obviously you had to find the family of Sabrina and those types of things. What kind of happened after that uh, point of finding Sabrina? Yeah. Well, first of all, the mindset was, for me anyway, it was because we had so much time, Calvin, before we hit the ground uh, to think about things. We had this engine explosion, and then 45 minutes later, we, we hit the ground. So we had a lot of time to think, knowing we were in trouble. I just remember telling myself, all right, we hit the ground. If you're dead, you obviously can't do anything. But if you're alive, don't panic. Don't flee the plane. Don't save yourself. Help other people. And those thoughts, those, those paid off for me. I, I tried to stay pretty calm. So the mindset was... Hey, this is going to be rough. We knew it was going to be a crash landing, but let's let's just uh, think it through as best we can and react to the circumstances. 
uh, and he answered his question about Sabrina. I got inside the plane and I started running away in, in the cornfield away from the aircraft. And I got a little, I got to a little clearing in the cornfield and I could kind of look back toward the wreckage. And it was, it wasn't a mountain or anything, but you could kind of see back behind you. And I looked back at where I'd come and I realized that where I'd come from was just a small piece of the plane. And it hit me then holding that baby, holding Sabrina that, man, this is really bad. This is a big plane. It's a jumbo jet. I only see a, a small piece of it. I knew then it was pretty serious. I, um, I, I found myself following some people who came out in front of me and they were kind of assembled in the cornfield. Many of them were hurt very seriously. I recognized a woman who had come out in front of me. I knew that she was all right. I just handed the baby off to her. I said, would you please take this baby because I want to help these other people. And this may sound a little strange, but after I did that, I completely forgot about going back in the plane and grabbing the girl. I, there was so much chaos and so much going on uh, that midnight that night, crash happened at four o'clock, midnight that night, I was watching TV at a local station, doing an interview, getting ready to do an interview. And I saw her, I saw Sabrina, the same little girl I grabbed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I went back in that plane and grabbed that little girl. And I handed her off to that woman and, and completely forgot about her. So. Yeah, it turned out that she and her whole family survived. There were uh, five of them, uh, Sabrina, two older brothers, and their parents, they all survived the crash. Wow. And I know um, we're going to touch upon like the post-crash, but unfortunately, I think uh, the, the your boss, I believe at the time, Jay Ramsdale, he unfortunately passed away. And I'm sure that was um, tough not knowing where he was and some of the others. So um, I'm sure that was, you know, amongst you going back and trying to help others, we, we, I'm assuming... And I think I saw you were looking for Jay and some of the others. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my first thought was after I survived, I was like, where's Jay? You know, I got to find him and, and couldn't, obviously. It turned out that he was, he was sitting in row 30 and about where he was, a plane caught fire. In fact, they didn't identify Jay's body until uh, Sunday night. The crash happened on Wednesday afternoon. But I spent that night basically going from hospital to hospital to the morgue at the airport looking for Jay. Couldn't find him by the next morning, which I assume meant he, he was a casualty, which he was. So, yeah, quite unfortunate. He was an incredible man. And so months following, obviously, I know uh, you had, and rightfully not so, but understandably had acute case of survivor's guilt. Can you kind of go through, like, you know, that whole piece of, you know, how do you, you know, I know you went into some depression. Like, what happened after the plane crash? Yeah, I, I was told, Kyle, that I was going to experience this thing called post-trauma stress disorder, PTSD. I had never heard that term before. This is back in 1989 when it wasn't quite vogue like it is today with our military personnel. I was like, because well, a counselor told me this. and what are you talking about? Say that again. I never heard that term before. Should I write that down? He said, no, you're going to go through survivor's guilt. You're going to go through anger. You're going to go through listlessness. You're going to go through depression. Because of what you went through, you're going to have these things happen to you without any question. But he just said, know that you can, that there are natural consequences of what you went through and you can work through them. Well, I, I remember that little meeting with that counselor and I'm thinking to myself, that stuff doesn't happen to me. It happened to former athletes and, you know, Jerry Schimmel and tough Midwestern born and raised guys. You, you get knocked down. What do you do? You pick yourself back up, right? But all those things hit me exactly like you said they would. I never saw them coming. I, I really I think that was a big shock for me. It was like I brushed it off, but it all hit exactly the way that counselor said it would. Wow. I, I just, you can't, I mean, you really can't put it into words. Um, you know, and then I think to kind of go and to see, you're obviously a competitor and for you to, 
you know, to go through all of this, but then to have to say, okay, I've got to lace my boots up and, and really get back to, you know, the grind and back to life. Um, you ended up, and I know we want to talk about, you know, your broadcast career and everything, but then you took to cycling. Is that correct? Uh, you, you, you went to be, you have gone on to become, uh, quite the, uh, impressive cycler, I should say, or cyclist. Um, how did, how did you really get involved in cycling? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one that I, I like to talk about a lot, you know, after the plane crash, Calvin, I was, I was probably a year after the crash and I was doing fine by this, uh, by this time for about a year, I was really struggling, but after a year, I kind of turned the corner. I was looking for some kind of physical outlets and that was recommended to me. You know, you can, you can go through counseling and all that, but you know, find a physical outlet. It really helps. And I thought I'd like to get back on my bike. And when I did that, something just clicked. I don't know what it was. And I had been a triathlete earlier in, a, in my, my life, but not, nothing, nothing great, nothing serious. And I got back on that bike and it just felt good. I don't know. It was the speed, the exhilaration, uh, the pain uh, that made me feel like I'm alive because the part of me died in that cornfield in, in Sioux City. And it just felt great. And I just kept riding and thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some races. And then that led to a couple rides across the country. And I thought, why don't I do this for charity? And I've been able to raise money for charity. But it just, it just worked out that after the crash, I needed that physical outlet and cycling gave it to me and it blossomed into this. Yeah. And I think to, to add on to that, how you, your dad was kind of an inspiration, right? I know he was quoted as, um, it means you don't sit around and have some self-pity. I know he was a tough individual himself, uh, I think, uh, serving in Europe during World War II. Um, and so I think he shared some of those adverse points with you. And it says, means you don't sit around and, and wallow in self-pity, which which I did. I think was what you're saying. You don't sit around and watch TV and hope things get better, which I did. You take action. You get up out of the chair and do something. And like Dad said, you must keep moving. So I thought that was an incredible quote. Yeah, Dad, Dad was a quiet guy. He, he really was. Never talked about his experience much in World War II, which I found out later was incredible. But uh, you know, when, when he'd speak or give advice, he'd listen. And, and he said, hey, Jerry, just keep moving. This is after the plane crash. Hey, just keep moving. And like, like you said, Kyle, his thought was, you know, don't just sit around and, and wait for something to happen. Maybe just keep going and keep moving and something good will happen. And that maybe is the best piece of advice he's ever given me. And I thought, you know, that is so true. And really since that day where he said that to me, dad's long gone. I've been gone for 10 years, but uh, I, I, I don't watch much TV. I, I want to do stuff, you know, because it, because it worked that, that advice worked for me. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, watch a lot of movies. I, I don't, I don't read a whole lot. I don't watch television. It's say keep moving because when you do good things happen. And I credit my dad for that. And not only did you keep moving, I was just going to say that <laughs> you moved across the country in a lot of miles. I don't know what's your total, uh, was it odometer or what, what's the, the total, uh, mile track uh, up to you have an idea? You know, I, in training, I'm not sure the, the rides across the country were 3000 miles or so. Um, so, you know, there's 9,000 there. There's probably another 20, 20, 30,000 of training that went into that before that. Yeah. I mean, I watched that, the trailer for uh, 2015 Godspeed race across America and watching, uh, you and your partner, uh, Brad Cooper, um, not only raising money for great causes, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but to see you guys just, just gut it out, just straight, um, heart and soul. I mean, it, 
it made me last night just, I was like, I was like, I got to do more. <laughs> I know we got up and worked out this morning, Mr. Black, but I was like, we got to do some more, man. This is, this is incredible. Can you kind of talk through that? I know you went from uh, what Oceanside, California across to Annapolis, Maryland, kind of that whole journey and the why behind it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I'd always wanted to do to ramp, race across America. It's called Ram for short. And I always wanted to do that. I, and I did some rides across the country, but they were just on my own, my own pace with my family along and raising money. And I thought, I'd like to race across the country. So I want to do as a two person relay. Brad's a good friend. He's a great cyclist. And we decided to pull the trigger on it. So yeah, it's 3000 miles, um, Oceanside, California. So San Diego area, you go through it in 12 states. 175,000 feet of elevation climbing. Um, and in our particular case, it started raining in Indiana, guys, and it never stopped. The last three days, it never stopped raining. I mean, day and night, 20, we just followed a thunderstorm across the country. We weren't ready for that. I mean, we made it through. We won the two-person division, but I wasn't ready for riding in the dark and rain. I've never done that before. So that was a challenge, and we had several other challenges. It was hundred and 16 degrees in day one, the Mojave Desert, and the rain hit, and the mountains, and all that. But we persevered, and you know, like anything, other any other accomplishment in life, it's it's a lot of hard work. There's challenges and hurdles, and you work through them, and you you try to get to the finish line, which is what we did. I bet when you so when you when you leave San Diego, it's beautiful, and you know, like you said, it's just one of those like you get the ride, and then you have unexpected circumstances that come up. Um, was there a time, you know, within the storm, did you have a point where you said, why am I doing, or like, did you just maybe want to quit? Uh, did you ever have kind of a moment where you may have broke down or like, you know what, like I'm only 1500 miles into this thing and (laughs) I don't know if I should keep going. Uh, You know, day, day one, I I had some second thoughts because it was 116 degrees. I think it was the hottest day on record in like 30 years in the Mojave Desert. It was crazy. And I think eight teams dropped out on day one because of the heat. They ended up in the hospital. And I thought, man, we, uh, this is hard. We just got to get through the desert here. I think we'll be okay. And, and then the, the, most of the race, the rest of the way, I didn't have those thoughts. I was excited. I felt good. And then we got into West Virginia, the Appalachian Mountains, and the rain hit. And I remember going one night, middle of the night, going down a mountain with the rain. And I got splashed by a semi into my face. I couldn't see anything. Totally blinded for about 15 or 20 seconds going down a mountain in West Virginia. And that's, that's the one point, Calvin, that really scared me. It, it was like, man, should I be doing this? Not necessarily the race, but should I be riding my bike at night in the rain down a mountain? Maybe I should wait a little bit here until things get better uh, weather-wise. But, you know, we, we just kept going. But that's really the one point in the race where I thought maybe we should not quit, but maybe we should slow down and be a little safer. And, and not only do you ride bikes, you also compete in triathlons, correct, and run marathons? So. Yeah, yeah, I've done, I've done three marathons. I had a knee replacement done a few years ago, so the running is kind of on the back burner right now. But um, I was just told the other day that hey, you can run on your knee if you want to. You might have to, you might wear it out again and get a, have to get a new one. But um, so I'm gonna, I think take, I've, I've done a couple of triathlons since uh, since the knee replacement, and I'll probably do some more of those. But yeah, three marathons, but no, probably no more marathons now with this knee. Just realize I'm soft. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, this is so you were. I mean, when 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 he says you know he wanted to keep moving, I mean he's he's moved a lot. <laughs> so that that is fantastic. And now, you know, I think this speaks to your uh, when I I got connected through one of your family members, John Schemmel, who's a great guy, 
And um, when he was telling me about you and I was looking up and I'm like, this speaks to your health and, and uh, wellness. I'm like, this guy can't be broadcasting for over 30 years. He can't be doing all this stuff. How old is this guy? <laughs> so you, you don't look the, you know, I mean, it's incredible what you're doing physically. And then obviously on the broadcasting piece, um, as I mentioned in the, in the intro, I mean, starting with the, the Timberwolves and then moving to the Nuggets and then onto the Rockies, uh, now it's doing sports rodeo in Denver. You know, um, it's a profession. Calvin and I doing this podcast that we've learned through our first 30 episodes is not nearly of obviously what you were doing, but just trying to communicate effectively is, is not always the easiest. And it's been pushing us outside the box to become better at asking quite mindful questions and, you know, being uh, intelligent upon our subject matter. So once again, I guess that was a tangent about the respect I have for, for folks in, in the media uh, at this point. But, you know, being we talked, we had a previous guest, Jeff Picaro from the Cincinnati Reds. Um, and he, I spoke with him last night and, uh, you know, he said, it's incredible, you know, what you had is only 30 to 32 jobs, whether you're at the nuggets or there, you know, being in the role you were. And he said, the announcers there are almost like a fraternity. Can you kind of touch upon what that small, incredible, talented group, uh, being part of those groups meant to you? Yeah. First of all, Kyle, I can tell you, I, I'm blessed by it. I, I really am. I mean, 20 years in the NBA and 10 in Major League Baseball, that's every young sportscaster's dream and then some. I mean, how can I ask for more than that? So that's the first thing. And when I think about the career, I think uh, how blessed I am. But then I, I, I think a lot, too, about what you just mentioned. There's just a very few number of these jobs. They rarely come open. And to get one of them, let alone two, three like I did, um, is, is probably – you know, something that I, I never thought could happen. I, I remember thinking I would just love to be in the NBA. That was my goal for years, being in the NBA because I did basketball. I thought I was good at it and finally made the NBA and spent 20 years there. And I thought, you know, Major League Baseball. I played college baseball. I coached. And that's, that's a pipe dream. I'll never get there. And age 50, I got the job at, in Major League Baseball. So, again, it just it just feels really good that I've had this incredible career. And there is that fraternity. It's not a, it's, it's not a cocky not a uh, egotistical bunch of people. It's, it's a bunch of guys like me and the guy you mentioned with the Reds and, and most other guys in the league who think, you know, I'm just darn lucky. I just, I'm so blessed to come to the ballpark every day and get paid for this. Are you kidding me to, to pay to describe basketball or baseball? This is unbelievable. This is not reality. This is a dream job. And I think that's the way most of us feel. It's a great fraternity and it was great to be in it for 30 years. What would um, someone, you know, for the average listener and having been in that fraternity, you know, um, we listen to, you know, you guys on TV and radio all the time. What would you, I'm always fascinated about the process. You know, can you talk a little bit maybe about the process, uh, you know, that kind of goes into, you know, broadcasting and maybe your preparation and then maybe something that the average listener wouldn't know about broadcasting because we only see and hear what, uh, what we see and hear. So I think that the big misconception is we show up at the ballpark and turn the mic on. Here we go. And that's just not the case. There's a lot of preparation. It's, it's, there's a lot of homework, especially in baseball, because there's way more players. And there's way more stats and stories and anecdotes and conversations. The NBA is rapid fire. You're trying to keep up with the ball and the score is always changing. And the pass is always the ball is always moving. In baseball, there's one pitch. And what happens? Nothing for about 30 seconds. So you have to fill that time in. So the styles are a lot different. The pace is completely different. But uh, there's fun in both of those sports for sure, calling those games. And I, I went back to uh, 
the teams that you you uh, um, were broadcasting for and went to, through the records and and I was curious. My my question of broadcasting a lot of games, right? There's a lot of NBA and baseball. It's a tremendously long season, and there were some tough seasons there. <laughs> Can you kind of uh, talk about how to keep the uh, listeners that are watching a last place Rockies or last place Nuggets um, kind of working them through the the you know making it entertaining? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a good question. And, and there were some tough times, especially with the Nuggets. We had 11 and 71 season one year. That's, that's a long, we went two and 39 on the road. <laughs> that was a long year. You know, I, I, it goes back to this, Kyle, to answer your question. I remember I played college baseball and I remember thinking, and my big thing was, Hey, get, I, I would, I'd love to make the major someday. I'd like to be a professional player. I was not good enough. Never even you know stepped onto that field. I remember telling myself in college, yeah, if I ever get the chance to play professional sports, I'm going to give it every single night. I'm never going to take a day off. I'm going to be ready to go when I'm going to give 100%. When I didn't make it as an athlete, I thought, I'm going to do the same thing as a broadcaster. I don't care what the team is like, what the score is. I'm going to bring my A game every single night. And I'm going to, and there are nights where you're getting beat by 30 points is it in, a, in a Nuggets game. You don't have to say the team sucks. You know, you can just say, hey, we're getting beat by 30, and people know that the team's not very good. <laughs> so you can, you can – presentation can reflect that. But the big thing is your attitude. If a game's out of reach, don't act like it is. Keep your enthusiasm, your energy up, and, and give the listeners 100% of your effort. Yeah, and, all, and everything I saw leading up to learning about you, Jerry, was just the professionalism and the consistency. You were held with high regard uh, from the teams and, and a lot of, you know, the folks in your industry – and I was looking um, in in there, and I thought something. You know who uh, the eight seed beating the one seed in '94 was? Calvin. He's a Cavs fan. No, no, this is out west. Oh. You're in the West's Nuggets here. Who? The, the, they beat the eight seed, I believe here, and help me, Jerry, if I'm correct. Nine, the Denver Nuggets, the eight seed in '94, '95, beat the one seed Spurs. How about that? Is that right? Actually. Seattle Supersonics or Seattle. Oh man, they lost to the. They lost. Okay, in ninety four. Okay, I'm looking at ninety three, ninety four. All right, there you go. See, Sean, like, Sean Kemp he's got my back. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that team was loaded. They had the best record in the NBA. Sean Kemp, and Sam Payton, Perkins, Sam Perkins, and yeah, Detlef Shrimp. I mean, they were Shrimp. loaded. Yeah. Yeah. They that, were loaded. That's right. And, See, I was looking one year ahead. So you guys lost in uh, the next year. Lost into the first round. You should call me the Spurs. You should call me Sam Perkins because his nickname was Big Smooth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had Dikembe Mutombo. How about that? The finger waving and yeah, the, in that next year because um, he was what the de- defensive player of the year. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, that'd been a fun fun guy to call some games for. But uh, yeah, just kind of looking through the different seasons and and kind of seeing the different players and the different folks. I mean, like I said, I. I Calvin talks. We had a comedian on Gary Owen. He wanted to be a comedian. We had an agent on last week. He wanted to be an agent. But what I wanted to be was what Jerry, which is a, here we is are. a broadcaster. So here we are, the underdog. <laughs> we're, we're doing our best over here and, and trying to have some fun. But um, tell us a little bit about now, kind of transitioning on um, since January, leaving the Rockies, and now uh, you know with the amazing the program called Amazing Americans uh, there in Denver. Talk talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, so I, I got that shocking news in January. I worked for the radio station, not the Rockies, and uh, iHeartMedia, and they let uh, 900 people go in one day, and I got caught up in that. So, yeah, January 16th or whatever it was, I was no longer with the Rockies. And then 
caught on with another station in town. I used to do games, the Nuggets games on this station, uh, Sports Radio 103, uh, 104.3, the fan. Um, ratings giant. They're one of the most successful all sports stations in America. Their, their ratings are absolutely incredible. And I'm going to do some filling talk show stuff with them. And then I had this uh, show on the other station in Denver called Amazing Americans. And like you said earlier, Kyle, it's uh, an interview style format hour long where I just talk to people of great motivation and inspiration. I mean, this, this first um, show is going to be on Sunday, airing on Sunday morning. Scott Weinbrink, name might not sound familiar to you, but a major league pitcher, good one, all-star for a while, made a lot of money, saved a lot of money, was going to retire and play golf and spend time with his family and all that. And then he took a trip to Haiti with his church and it completely changed his life. He saw the devastation there. Now he's in the front lines of a charity that's trying to provide clean water for third world countries. So uh, people like that, uh, Dave Grabecki might know his story. Dave is going to be on in a couple of weeks, but um, uh, second week is Sean Swarner, who's the first cancer survivor to climb Mount Everest. Um, just really cool, inspirational, powerful, motivational stories of athletes and really from all walks of life. And it's been a blessing to me. I can't wait to get it started again. Yeah. Nothing like having an athlete and uh, inspiration like yourself, you know, pulling out more inspiration from others. So I think that'll be I can't wait to to see that and and uh, watch what you guys are all doing. So that's going to be really really exciting. You think you would ever uh, opportunity presents itself? Get back into you know uh, professional sports? I would like to. Yeah, honestly, I think it's a long shot for me. I'm 60 years old, and it's not a big market for 60 year old broadcasters, right? Probably about play guys, right? Everybody's looking for the young hot shot, and so which I completely understand. I would like to, Calvin. I really would, but. I, I think the odds are probably stacked against me. And if that's if that happens, I'm fine with that. If that's the route God wants me to take me away from doing play-by-play, then I'm good with that. I would love to do it again, but I think it probably is not going to happen. Well, like you said, you were able to, I mean, it was your dream job and you were able to experience it for, you know, 30 plus years or whatnot. And, you know, the transition and unfortunately things happen, but, you know, it sounds like you found, you know, a new path and something that you're still passionate about and you're still able to be involved with sports and share inspirational stories. So, uh, again, hopefully here at the underdog, you know, we can maybe be at the same level that you guys are, but we got a long way to go. So <laughs> no doubt. So, Hey, uh, Jerry, we got a rapid fire section we do here on the underdog and, uh, got some, got some, uh, hot topic questions for you. Sound good? Yeah, that's great. Okay. So the first one is, is from, from John, your family member said, uh, when you were starting your career in broadcasting at Washburn, your, your nephew, John said there was a pretty epic weekend with your brothers when you called a game at Sam Houston State then drove through the night to Dallas to catch a Bears game the next day. Can you share any details from that drive or the weekend overall? <laughs> um, I would get in a real serious trouble if I shared some uh, uh, memories from wrong. okay? <laughs> oh, man. Only John would bring that up. <laughs> I told you, uh, I put you on the hot seat, so... Uh, yeah, first of all, uh, the, the game Washburn played at San Houston State was pouring down rain. It was There was water standing all over the field. It was a mess. And Washburn got beat by four touchdowns or something. It was a terrible game. And we just had to drive to, to Dallas the next day, and the weather got better, and uh, the Bears are playing the Dallas Cowboys, so that was a big – we were all big Bears fans. So that was a lot of fun. I remember going to a couple of restaurants that I've never been to before, like I'd eaten seafood like for the first time in my life in Houston. <laughs> like, oh, it was really good. 
So uh, no, just what I remember too is a lot of laughs. Uh, I got I got four brothers, and we're all really close, and we just had a great time. We we've done similar things to that, but that one might stick out the most. So are you still um, are you a, a Broncos or a Bears now a days? No, I'm still Bears fan. I'm still Bears fan. Yeah, yeah. Broncos, you can't help but when you live here in Denver. This is a Broncos town, and the draft coming up and all that. So and the sports radio station I work for talk to Broncos about 90% of the time. So yeah, I, um, not by choice, but by, um, assimilation, I've become a, a Broncos fan. <laughs> so a secondary question and I'll get off the bears here, but what, what about, uh, curious your, your take knowing sports so well, uh, Mitch Trubisky and the future at the quarterback position for the Chicago bears. Yeah. It looks a little shaky. I think it looks shaky to me. And it, when you look at the numbers, you can see why. So, um, I think the, the Bears are probably moving in a different direction. I, I don't see him being a long-term guy at quarterback for the Bears. Talent, absolutely. Great body and all that, and he can throw, but he just doesn't put it together like a lot of very talented quarterbacks. Yeah, I was hoping being a, an Ohio guy, mentor Ohio, that uh, Mitch is. I was hoping that he would be able to make it, but uh, right now maybe he will, but it's not looking, not looking promising. Long shot. Long shot for <laughs> sure. So having had your dream job, What's your favorite uh, broadcasting moment, and who would you say your favorite player has been over the years that you've got the call? Uh, yeah, um, I've, I've got a, uh, a couple of favorite players. One, uh, Dikembe Mutombo, was mentioned earlier. Um, just a, an incredible basketball player, especially a defensive player, and humanitarian. And, and he and I have kept in, in pretty close contact over the years since he retired. And, he's, and all the stuff he does – the public stuff we know about is raising money for the hospital in Zaire and all that. But all the stuff in the States that he does with charity is under the radar. And I respect that so much. He's probably my favorite basketball player. Um, in terms of baseball, uh, the Rockies have a guy, uh, Charlie Blackman, an outfielder. He's been a, an all-star. Charlie is a great guy. He, I, I used to lead the Bible study in the road. and Charlie would be front and center every time. And uh, just had a great sense of humor. Has a great story behind make, making Major League Baseball. He's just a consummate professional and uh, couldn't be any better to fans. So those are my two favorite players. I think the, the best moment for me was what you mentioned, Kyle, was when the Rocket, when the uh, Nuggets knocked off the Sonics in game five of those playoffs when it was the first time a number one seed ever beat that number eight seed on the road. Uh, so he had like five all-stars. Uh, they had the best record in the league and all that. So that was that moment, that game five, beating them in overtime was probably the best basketball moment. Um, I was fortunate enough to call, check this out, uh, a Rockies game where Nolan Arenado had a walk-off home run and the home run uh, finished the cycle for him. Mm, so wow. Walk-off, finished the cycle, home run to win a game. Uh, and I got to call that one. So that was that was probably the other uh, great memory, at least for baseball. Yeah, that that's uh that doesn't I I think I remember that. I try to follow baseball a decent amount. I mean, he's a special talent <clears throat> in himself. Him and uh, what Trevor Story is that right? The shortstop. <laughs> what do what? <clears throat> excuse me. They got a got a cough here. But um, what uh, what what do you think the Rockies' um, record this year is going to be? If they yeah, play, if they ever, yeah. If they ever play, I think they're. I, I, honestly, I think they're at best at five hundred team. They they just uh, they're so hand, handcuffed right now with salaries um, that they can't they can't sign a free agent. They can't make a trade. They're just I think this year is going to be tough. After this year, they have a lot of financial relief, and I think they'll, they'll look a lot different. Um, they're going to have to bounce back. They, they were 20 games under 500 a year ago. 
they're going to have to have some career years from some guys and get the bullpen figured out before they can, I think, even be a 500 team. So they play, I think it'll be a successful season if they're 500. Actually, I was thinking an uncommon commonality, and, and this is a mutual contact of us. One of my best friends, uh, dad's best friend, there's a lot of best friends there, but it's Jim Tracy, because Jim Tracy is actually from Cincinnati. So I don't know. Would you have anything we can pass along to Jim if we if I see him around? That, by the way, is one of my favorite men in the whole world. I mean, that guy, I don't know how much time you spent around Jim Tracy, but if you do, you just have to smile. He has his unique way of living life and I can say this, he has an incredible passion for baseball. You know what, he was really successful with the Rockies. He, he, he won a lot of games as the manager of this team and just has unique personality and always wants to know about your family and your dog and, you know, whatever else. But um, Jim Tracy, honestly, is one of the favorite people in the whole world for me. Yeah, yeah, he's been super. I met him. I was in his wedding, uh, my friend's wedding he, he was at and around a few other times, and he's first class all the way, so – um, yeah, it's great, great to hear. If we see him, I'll, I'll let him know uh, we connected. Uh, another one I, we had, we actually have uh, Chris Heron coming on our podcast next week. Did you guys cross paths when you were at, in the when Denver for the Nuggets? Yes, Chris Heron, the point guard. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Chris. Chris was here for a couple of years, and yeah, I know the background, the story with him. I'm trying to get him on Amazing Americans, but he doesn't want to commit to 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, we're 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 supposed to. We're supposed to get him on next. We'll, we'll push him hard and say, "Hey, get uh, get uh, with Jerry." And if you have any questions? Uh, maybe we can steal one of your questions. If what you think, knowing Chris and, and the time in Denver, is there any good questions we should ask? We always try to ask our guests for other questions for other guests. So, what would you what would you say we should ask him? You know, I I don't think there's anything from his playing days in Denver that I want to ask him about other than touching on it. But I want, I think he's just got this incredible story, you know, the drug use and, and all, all the, 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 the dark past that he has that he's now turned around his life and can have an impact on other people in the process. So that's what I would want to know. Hey, are there individuals out there that share your story that you had an impact to? Because that's, to me, that's what, what Amazing Americans is about. And I think it's probably what you guys are getting at too. How has your life impacted other people? And I want to ask Chris Heron that. I'm guessing he has many, many stories about how his experiences impact other people in a good way. Yeah, I mean, his stories, it, it, it's, it's unspeakable, just everything that he's gone through and overcome. But and now being, you know, a face out there and for people to relate to. And as you touched on, this is something that a passion of ours, why we wanted to start this podcast. And, you know, with the same thing you guys are doing um, with your show as well. So yeah, we're excited for that one. Like Kyle said, we'll see if we can push him your way. Um, I don't know how much pool we have, but we'll <laughs> definitely, we'll definitely try, man. So yeah, we we're, we're super blessed to have, have your time. And is there any uh, parting words for our, our listener base that you can uh, leave upon them? Uh, you know, Kyle, when I do motivational speaking, I, I, I say this a lot. My wife said this a long time ago. I think it's really true. Everybody has their own plane crash. You guys have. I don't know what yours is. Kyle has one. Calvin has one. Anybody who's ever lived long enough has their own plane crash. It might not be as bad as I went, went through. It might be worse than I went through. Um, I interviewed a guy for Amazing Americans the other day who lost a child. I mean, that's every parent's worst nightmare. I would do 100 plane crashes to avoid losing one of my kids. Everybody has their own plane crash, and, and everybody handles it differently. But I think everybody as well has their own RAM. They have their own race across America that we talked about, and that is something you've always wanted to do you've never done. Never pull the trigger on this thing that might be stirring in you. 
So my advice in parting ways with you guys is everybody has their own plane crash. Handle it as best you can. Everybody has their own ramp. And if you have yours, pull the trigger on it. Don't wait. Don't get to your deathbed and, and have that regret like, I should have done this and I never did. Wow. That's great parting words. Couldn't be any, any, any better said. So thank you, Jerry, so much. How can, I know, uh, Jerry Is that correct? And uh, can you, uh, let, let our listeners know how to follow on Twitter and Instagram or any other uh, platform you're on? Yeah. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. It's, uh, at Jay Schimmel six. So, um, at Twitter there, I'm on Facebook as well. And then amazing Americans is our website. American amazing Americans.org. Amazing Americans.org, um, is the radio show. So, those couple of things would be great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much on behalf of the underdog podcast. We really appreciate your time. You're an inspiration to us. And thank you so much. Yeah, man. Appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the underdog podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google podcast apps and send our Twitter handle, a screenshot of your rating at underdog pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.